Um, as we get uh, started, before we get into the message for today, um, this is the beginning of the school year for many people, parents. Yeah, right? Yeah, we're excited. So uh, summer's over almost. Um, but we do want to take a moment. Uh, we love our teachers and educators here at this church. And um, any of you who are a teacher, maybe an administrator, a school board member, or have anything to do with our public and private schools or, or education, um, and you work in that field, we want to embarrass you for a minute because we love you and we want to pray for you. So if, you are, if that's you, would you stand up so we can honor you and pray for you? Um, I know first service we had a bunch. Were all the teachers first? Okay, good. I know we have some. Thank you. Stay standing. Don't be embarrassed. We actually honor you. We're so grateful for you. We know that the work you do sometimes feels very thankless. We hope you had a wonderful summer and feel refreshed and ready to go. The students you're going to have this year are the best you've ever had. So we just want you to know that um, right now. Um, but we want to, we're just so grateful for you and we want to pray for you because it's hard. It's hard to be the light of Jesus in different spaces. And so here's what I want to do is um, we are going to just uh, uh, pray for you. And just, if, if you're new to church, this might sound weird, but this is just symbolic. Would you just, if you're near them or just wherever you are, just kind of reach your hands towards uh, our teachers and educators just as a sign of, hey, we're with you. And would you join me as we pray? God, we thank you so much for everyone in this room who's a part of uh, teaching, creating environments where our kids can learn and grow uh, maybe they're on administration or, or making big, uh, high-level decisions, and some are maybe just working in facilities, but all of that matters, Lord. And so I pray that where, uh, where each of these people, would you bless them this year? Would you protect their health? Would you protect their minds? And would you give them the courage and wisdom to be your light in a way that brings hope to students and parents who sometimes don't have it? And, and Lord, to really to be your hands and feet in those spaces that sometimes can be dark and challenging spaces. So we pray for them now, for your power in their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again, educators. Well, I want to invite you. We're going to be in two different places today in Scripture. We're going to be in, actually, the book of Revelation, um, and, uh, which is, if you're new to Scripture, it's the very last book of the Bible. You're always welcome to use a digital version if you like to follow along. And we're also going to be in a, a book called Ephesians today, in those two spaces. So we don't always bounce around a lot, but we want you to kind of get a heads up. Now, we're in our 35th anniversary as a church, which started in 1988, but there was a company that really became, uh, started growing a lot in the 90s. In fact, at one point was one of the fastest growing food chains in the history of the world, and to this day has 36,000 locations and hundreds of thousands of employees, and they really were a disruptor, uh, kind of changing the way people do life and really change the way people spend money in many ways. And that company uh, you would all be familiar with is Starbucks. And uh, Starbucks had this, when they started, Howard Schultz, their founder, had this idea. He wanted it to be not just what they called the first place of, of your home or second place where most people spend their time, which is uh, work or maybe students at school, but they said, we want to create a third place. We want to be somewhere where people can go and they can work on their work, they can meet with people, they can go on dates, they can meet up with friends, they can meet new friends. They want to create an environment that wasn't just about getting your food or drink and leaving. 
They wanted to create this other environment, which was one of the reasons why in the Starbucks kind of DNA, they tried to say, they said, we, I don't know if they always do this well, but they say, we always want super clean bathrooms that are open to anyone. You can just, if you're driving, you can stop and use it. And then free Wi-Fi, which at first was actually a novelty. And, and the purpose was to create a third place. Howard Schultz was known to say, we're not in the coffee business serving people, we are in the people business serving coffee. And recently, I read an article about Starbucks that said Starbucks has lost its way. Now, Starbucks is still growing year over year. Has, it's now only single-digit growth, but they're still very profitable, still doing well. Some of you fund them quite often and, and still are doing that. And, and here's the thing about Starbucks as I read the article. Their quality of coffee, if you like their coffee, some of you have strong opinions, but let's go with me. It, their quality of coffee has not changed. In fact, it's probably only improved. The drinks they make are still the same quality and they're as good as ever. They become more efficient. The food they provide is actually pretty good food. Um, and so in many ways, they're at the top of their game in all of those areas. But actually with the rise of technology, and improving some of their efficiency, they've lost something about what makes them who they are. Because they have this thing, the Starbucks app. Maybe, many of you are familiar with it. It might be the most used app on your phone. I don't know if it is. Well, there's some things we can talk about. But what you can do, and what you do is you, you order, the drink is made, and now, if you're like me, from time to time when I go there, I'll order on my way. It's there, I walk through the door, grab my drink, leave. I, know, I don't talk to anyone anymore. And that's not how Starbucks was found. It was intended to be within three seconds of walking in, someone would say hi to you, and if you're a regular, they'll say hi to you by name. Hey, Ryan, how are you doing? You want us to get going on your skinny vanilla latte? If that's your drink. And, and you get going. It was a personal connection. It was intended to make you feel like that is your third space. But the very thing, the technology, that made them more efficient and, more, and cut down the lines has actually made them lose their way. They lost their heart. They're not doing anything wrong. It's just no longer the same space. Today we're going to look in Scripture and, and read something about Christians in a church that says this, that it is possible as a Christian and as a church to do the right things but completely miss the heart of it all. And there's this warning that's given to a church that we're going to read about today that I felt like was necessary for us, not because I think we're losing our course, but because for us to be relevant for 35 years, I think it's important that we every once in a while go back to saying, we might do the right things, but without the right heart, we're going to lose our way. So would you go with me today and, and to Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to find two things today that we're going to challenge you with. One thing is this is we want to learn how to cultivate a growing love for God in our own lives. So we're going to look at that. So we're going to cultivate a growing love for God in our own lives. And the second thing we're going to look at is how do we then intentionally walk out that love for one another in our, among each other. So cultivating a growing love for God and intentionally walking out that love one with one another. So that's what we're going to look at today. And all of this is so that we can be a church that is relevant and, and about the things of the kingdom of God. 
We have this saying here, we, we exist to help people discover life in Christ. That's why we exist as a church. And we say we create three environments. One is a home for the lost and wandering. We want to create a family of disciples who are transformed by the good news. And the third thing, which relates to you teachers and educators, is we're a movement of people blessing the neighborhoods in which we live, work, and play. And that's not just here locally, but this is to the ends of the earth. As we support missionaries and, and projects around the world, the point is, as we've been transformed, we want to be a blessing wherever we go in the name of Jesus. So how do we do that is what we're going to look at and make sure that we don't lose our way. So join with me now as we look at Revelation chapter 2. This is a series of messages in this book that are... Uh, messages to various churches that existed near the end of the first century. So this is the context of what we're going to read. He starts off and says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this and uh, saying, the one who holds the seven stars in his hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. This is symbolic of essentially saying, this is a message from Jesus to the church. Verse two says, I know your deeds and I know your labor and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate evil people. And you've put those who call themselves apostles to the test, and they are not. And you found them out to be false. You have perseverance, and you have endured on account of my name, and you have not become weary. This sounds good, right? This is a solid idea of a church. They're persevering. They're testing the truth. They're not becoming weary. Verse 4, but I have this against you. You have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent. Do the deeds you did at first, or I'm coming to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And that lampstand is symbolic of the presence of God saying, if, if you continue on this path, then you, you won't even recognize my presence among you anymore. Verse six, but you do have this. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And that was a group, most likely it was a, a heresy that popped up that was saying there's freedom in Christ. You can live in sin all you want because it doesn't really matter because as long as your spirit is saved, your flesh doesn't matter what you do. Most likely that's the Nicolaitans are. Um, there's not consensus because there's not a lot of evidence. Verse seven, so the one who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. To the one who overcomes, I will grant to you to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, which essentially is saying you can have eternal life from me to the one who overcomes. Now, we want to understand this passage to the Ephesians. A little bit about this church will help us understand. Now, this church, uh, we have a lot of evidence about it in Scripture. In fact, in the book of Acts, there's uh, extensive stories about Paul and has uh, some interactions there in Ephesus, a riot that formed while he was there, some dispute. Um, we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, the book of First Timothy and Second Timothy were written to a guy named Timothy, who was probably the pastor over a church in Ephesus at the time. So it gives us some insight as well as an, a, a letter written to the Ephesians, the church in Ephesus. So we have some of that evidence. We also have tons of archaeological evidence of this city. This city was uh, one of the largest in the region. In current day, it would be western Turkey on the coast. And uh, it was a prominent, wealthy city, well-educated, and very spiritual. 
Uh, there was, it was the home of the temple to the goddess Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And uh, so there was a lot of goddess worship going on there, which uh, the way they worshiped, there was a lot of kind of cultic prostitution and things like that was a part of worshiping this fertility god. And so it was a town that was known for uh, being well-rehearsed in culture. It was very diverse as far as the amount of people, very educated, very successful, and very spiritual. Uh, we have a few just images for you to kind of, it's always nice to picture what it might look like. And a couple images for you here. This is a rendering from some of the archaeological ruins. This on the top, is, this is a huge structure. And on the top of it is a temple to the Emperor Domitian, Domitian was the emperor at the end of first century. So um, when the book of Revelation was written, Domitian was the emperor here. He had a temple built to himself and a statue of himself. He preferred people would refer to him as Lord and God. That was the title he preferred. Uh, so you can see as the New Testament writers talk about Jesus as Lord and God, they're in direct opposition to what's going on with what's called the emperor cult. Um, and that was big in, in, um, in Ephesus in the time of Domitian. Uh, although Domitian was generally hated by most people, he built a nice temple to himself there. Um, the next picture is just some of the archaeological ruins of that temple. Um, and uh, this next one is actually an image of a street. So this uh, was taken in first century, this picture. And um, <laughs> But this is actually uh, one of the most famous streets in Ephesus uh, to this day. Uh, it's, a, it's, a beautiful, it's one of my top like five archaeological sites in the world that I love to go and study and teach at. Um, this street here, uh, at the end of it, it has this famous imagery of the Library of Celsus, which wasn't built until second century. But this is what it looked like. And we have about half of each of these buildings. So it's pretty, um, and a lot of the statues are still, they have found them all. So this is a very accurate probably rendering of what Ephesus would look like. All that to say, it was a prominent, wealthy city right in the distance uh, that you can see at the end of the street is the water. It was a, a bay at the time. Uh, since then, it's kind of a marshland built up. Um, but it used to be a port as well. So it was a great place to go on vacation. This is where, if you were from Arizona, where you would go when it's hot. You know, you'd want to go here. It's a great place. Wealthy, successful, educated, spiritual. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? It sounds a lot like Encinitas or San Diego or even California in general. And so it was a type of place that to be a church was challenging because it was in a culture that wasn't always favorable towards Christian morals. And yet, in the midst of that, there was this growing gathering of people who were transformed by the love of Jesus and the love for one another, and they were making a major difference. We read in the book of Acts, in fact, so many people were being transformed by this message of grace that they were getting rid of and destroying their idols to Artemis and to the different gods. And, and we found, archaeologists have found these idols even to this day, so there's evidence of them. And we read in the book of Acts, so many people were taking their idols and magic books, and they were smashing them and burning them, that those who made those idols were saying, we're losing money. If these Christians continue to make a difference in our city, we're in trouble. So they started this big riot kind of chaos and saying it's the Christians are trying to destroy our way of life. 
It's a power, it's an example of the power of a gathering of people transformed by Jesus in a very dark place. And so when we read in Revelation this, what's written to them, I want you to notice the good things that were said about them. The good things were this, that they, were, they worked hard and they persevered. They were in a culture that was against them, that were accusing them, that were doing all kinds of things, saying, you guys have lost your mind, who are you Christians? Yet, they persevered. They did not tolerate evil people, and that was from within. It means people who were starting to teach them false teaching, people who were uh, distorting the words of God. The next phrase there was that you test all the teaching of the apostles and you stay true to the word. So they were faithful. They were committed to doctrine. They had all this knowledge. They said, we know what we believe, and we're going to hold to it. And even when culture tells us otherwise, we're going to stick to the truth. Good things. But they lost their way. They were doing all of these things that on the surface we would say, that's what we want to see. But they left their first love. Some translations might say the thing you loved at first or the way you loved at first. So what was that? I want you to look in Ephesians chapter 1 now. I have some of these verses on the screen for you. In Ephesians chapter 1, this is a letter that Paul writes to them. And we hear a little bit about the kind of love they have. The first 15 verses or so, or 14 verses, are really about Paul saying, hey, don't forget who you are. You've been saved by the grace of Jesus. You've been sealed in the Holy Spirit. You've been lifted up, meaning you, your identity has been transformed by the grace of God, and that is who you are. You're now sons and daughters of the King. Your inheritance is in heaven with Jesus, and that's who you are. And, and Paul says this uh, in verse 15. After he says he's heard about all of them and, and, and who they are in Christ, he says, For this reason, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and hearing of your love for all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention you of your prayers. It's important that we see this. That the thing, the reputation of the church in Ephesus was this, this great faith in the Lord Jesus that then led to this love for all the saints. Their very definition, what preceded them, the reputation that preceded them was one of this loving community. And it was rooted in their understanding of God's love for them that then became this love that overflowed for others. So the, who they were was these people who had this amazing, uh, understood that they were loved and sons and daughters of God, and therefore they were able to have this amazing love for all the saints. That was who they were. Now by the time Revelation is written by, we think it's the uh, um, disciple John who writes it because he lived in Ephesus at the time he was banished by Domitian to this island called Patmos, and he's writing this letter, and he's saying to them, hey, you're doing all the right things. This is the message from Jesus, but the love is no longer existent among you. So it's possible to be a Christian who has all the right doctrine. It's possible to be a church who believes all the right things and even says all the right things. It's possible to do that and yet not have love, and therefore be at risk of the presence of God not even being among us to lose our way. So here's the question. 
is how do we grow to authentically have this love for others? How do we do, how, what do we need to focus on to really love one another? Because, friends, sometimes it's hard to love each other, is it not? If you think it's not, just let's think back to the last three years. <laughs> have you ever had any hard times loving each other? Maybe you look at what your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ think. Maybe what they post online. Maybe how they vote. And I'm not singling out one side or the other because we have all the sides represented here. It's really challenging sometimes to love each other when we don't all think the same. It's hard to love you when you, don't have, when you think exactly like I think because I think the right way, and so it's confusing sometimes. So how do we grow in love for each other? How do we make sure that we do not do as the Ephesians did and have all the right thoughts but not the right heart? I have a few thoughts for you, and we'll find it in the book of Ephesians. So in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, now verse 17, notice this is what Paul says as he's praying for them. He says, I do not cease praying for you and giving thanks to you, mention you in my prayers, and I'm praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and the revelation in the knowledge of him. So the first thing that Paul is praying for them is that they may have the spirit of wisdom and this revelation about the knowledge of God. In other words, before we can worry about what to do, we need to grow in this, actually this knowledge, this un- understanding, this revelation about God. And this isn't just knowledge we put in our heads. Some of you know more scripture than I will ever know. And I, I feel like a Bible nerd. I like that kind of thing. Some of you know a lot. There are people outside of church who know so much scripture. They know a lot about God. So it's not just that knowledge. This is a a Greek word here used for knowledge, but it's a different kind of knowledge. This is the epigenosis, or epigenose in this case, the way it's used, which is this idea of knowledge that is experienced. It's not just something in your head. It's something that you've kind of worked out, and so now you have firsthand knowledge of it. Uh, when I was in high school and then in college, I loved to snow ski, and um, I lived in the Northwest, and I did a lot of backcountry skiing. I loved to backcountry ski. Um, anywhere that people weren't was the best place to be. Many of you can relate to that. Uh, this last uh, ski season, some of you had the most fresh tracks you've ever had, so you understand the joy of that, right? So backcountry, uh, you had to understand a little bit about snow and skiing. Because if you're going to be jumping off of cliffs or skiing through trees and going through stuff, you have to know about tree wells, which is how the snow doesn't fall underneath trees, so you can fall into those. You have to know a little something about avalanches. Um, And and so you learn, get this knowledge about what do I do if that situation happens to me? And and I'm not talking about the big, you know, the big stuff where you need the beacon and where you have people with you and the dogs are going to come dig you out. This is even just the normal backcountry stuff. What do you do? And so you know a couple things, and if, if you get caught in an avalanche, so this is, a, this is a public service announcement for you, so if this happens to you, now you'll know. Church is useful, right? So if you get caught in an avalanche, 
You want to get to the sides if possible. So it's similar to swimming in a rip current. You don't try to go up it, and you can't outrun an avalanche. Let me just tell you right now, not going to happen. So you want to get to the edge as quickly as you can. By the way, don't hide behind a rock because the snow piles up around rocks. It's a bad place to be. So you want to go towards the edge if you are able. If you are skiing and the avalanche catches you, you want to do your best to swim to try to stay on top of the snow. So that's something you want to do. And if you can't stay on the top of the snow, you want to try to create a little air pocket so you can breathe long enough for someone to find you. Okay, no problem, right? Anyone have a little anxiety right now just hearing those? <laughs> Adrenaline junkies are like, okay, yeah, what's next? <laughs> So I had all that knowledge and uh, backcountry skiing one day and I'm skiing and I had that moment uh, where all of a sudden I was like, oh, I'm moving faster than I thought I was when all the snow decided to move down the mountain with me. Now I want to ruin, I'm going to skip ahead. I, I made it out. <laughs> I, I, was, I was okay. Here I am. Um, but it was that moment when all of a sudden what I knew up here had to become reality. When you had to kick in and say, okay, I've heard what to do and kind of kick into gear and try to do the swim, try to stay on top. Now, fortunately, it was actually a pretty small avalanche. It was small enough to where I was out of the snow at the end of it and was laughing because I thought it was so cool. I was like, oh, look, I was in an avalanche. I didn't have high uh, SAT scores, by the way, so just know that's who I am. <laughs> to me, that was, it, it was small enough to where it was fun and my friend was laughing at me like, oh my gosh, that could have been bad. Um, and things you don't tell your moms, right, when you, later on. But all of a sudden, the knowledge of what to do went from, I think I know, to, oh, I've experienced it at least a little bit. That's epigenosis. And as we walk with God, if we think that, okay, we understand that God loves us, we understand he cares for us, that's our knowledge, but until we let it play out in our lives, it, it just stays here. Until you have that moment where you're feeling that shame and you say, I, I, how could God love me because sin, I'm sinful and I've failed and I fell again. And until you work out and dwell in that fact, yeah, but Christ, while I was still a sinner, he died for me. Until you just really embrace that and rehearse that truth and, and start to feel what it means to be forgiven, it's just knowledge. But when you get it, it's transformational. Until you know that, you know, in Christ, I don't have to measure up for everyone. I don't have to be your savior. And so therefore, I can be selfless. I can give of myself. I don't have to live for your approval. So it changes the way I'm a husband. It allows me to selflessly love my wife and say it's about, it's not about what I can get from her and somehow be affirmed. It's I can give. And it's the love of God in me that then is, becomes working knowledge. And so as Christians, what we want to do is take what we know about God and his great love and say, how do we make that just become so much a part of our DNA that even when we feel rejection, we say, I'm not rejected, I'm in Christ. Even when life doesn't go the way we want it to go, but we find, you know what, the world seems out of control, but my God is on his throne. He's in control. So I can have confidence. Look what Paul writes as he continues on in his prayer, verse 18. He says this, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know the hope of his calling. Work out this love. And so in the midst of something that feels hopeless, we try to say, God, if it's true that you love me, then even in this moment, there's hope. 
And, and he says, I pray that you may know the riches and the glory of his inheritance. In other words, you are sons and daughters of the king. Your home is in heaven. That is who you are. So even if you never win the lottery and the Powerball, you never get that big promotion, you never have significance that you thought you'd have in the eyes of this world, you are sons and daughters of God, and that is the best thing that could ever happen to you. And so when we start to believe that, then all of a sudden we can say, I can live a quiet life of faithfulness and love of God and of others because I'm not, I don't need to achieve to be accepted because I'm as accepted as I will ever be by my King Jesus. And so we start to live that out. And then Paul says in verse 19, I pray that you may know the boundless greatness of his power towards us who believe. Do you as a Christian know that the power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead lives in you? The Spirit, Holy Spirit of God is a part of who you are, your DNA. I know. So why do we live as if we don't have the Spirit in us? Why are we afraid? When the Spirit of God who raised Christ Jesus from the dead is in you, when we get this and we take that step of faith and it goes from head to actually epigenosis, this working knowledge, all of a sudden, the way we live starts to change slowly, by, just bit by bit. By the way, you're going to figure it out and then the next time there's an avalanche, you're going to freak out and say, do I remember this? It's okay. There's two steps forward, two steps back. That's how we are but we learn to walk step by step. And then we see that God, actually what you say is true is actually true because I'm working it out in daily life, day by day. I'm gonna risk forgiving this person because I know that it's not about me in this moment, it's about releasing and just I'm gonna walk in forgiveness because I've got the power of God in me. How they respond isn't on me. How I respond on me because the power of God's in me. I'm a son and a daughter of the king. So Paul says, may you know that. I pray that you grow in this knowledge. Grow beyond just this head thing. It's not show up on Sunday and say, okay, when's the sermon over? It's, oh my goodness, this is the knowledge that changes how I parent, how I'm in my marriage, how I lead a staff, how I work for someone, how I treat my neighbors, how I drive on the freeway is transformed because of who I am in Christ. And it allows us to be a church that then is a blessing because we're set free. Our dad holds all things in his hands, the king of the universe. So, we want to grow in all of those things. Growing in grace. Peter Kreeft is a professor at Boston, Boston University, says this, as we learn to grow as Christians, trusting in God's grace means trusting God's love for us rather than our own love for God. Therefore, our prayers should consistently or consist mainly of rousing our awareness of God's love for us rather than trying to rouse God's awareness of our love for him. As we want to grow as Christians, our prayers, the how do we grow in his love is we want to arouse our awareness of God's love for us. Instead of saying, oh, we need to somehow arouse God's awareness of our love for him. And so I want to give you a challenge to think through how are you cultivating in your own life this growing knowledge of God's love? 
Some of you need to rehearse when you're caught in that shame and in that sin, in that cycle of failing. When you say, God, would you forgive me one more time? Would you learn to rehearse? I am so grateful that you died once and for all and I am forgiven even though I'm a knucklehead. Would you rehearse that? I can't believe you love me so much that you knew I was going to fail and yet you love me. And rehearse that truth. Some of you are here today and you say, I'm unlovable. That's a lie from the enemy. The creator of the universe loves you more than you could ever imagine. So much so he gave his life for you. Rehearse that truth. And then what's the result of that? When we grow in our love for God, then we're set free to love one another. We're set free to begin to love one another. In Ephesians Chapter 4, Paul, at the end of saying, this is who you are in Christ, this is your identity, rehearse that truth, grow in your working knowledge of this love that God has and your ide- all of that. He gets to verse 4 and he says, therefore, now that you got that figured out, <laughs> I, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. Now get this, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, Bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, because there's one body and one Spirit, just as you're called with one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. In other words, he says, as we get who we are in Christ, now we can truly love the way God has called us to love. What happened in the church of Ephesus is they had a lot of intellectual knowledge, but they lost their love. They were no longer shaped by the love of God in them, and they were no longer loving each other. It all became about having the right scripture interpretation with no heart. Now, by the way, the right scripture interpretation matters. We're committed to it. But if we care more about our doctrine than we do about love and looking at brothers and sisters of Christ, knowing that they too have the Holy Spirit of God, even if we think differently, if we can't learn to love them, then we're missing the point. Because by the way, I think all of us are going to be wrong on something. Our first Bible class in heaven is going to say, okay, here's where you got it wrong. We're all like, oh man. (laughs) Okay, a few things. How do we love each other? Paul says it right there. With all humility and gentleness. I think that alone would transform the church. Could you imagine, not just this church, but the global church? What if we were known for being humble, humble and gentle people who are transformed by Jesus? Look on the news these days, how many times they say, you know, the good thing is, in the dark world, Christians at least are humble and gentle. If you see that, copy it and send it to me, please. Tim Keller said this. He said, The Christian gospel is that I'm so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I'm so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I don't think more of myself nor less of myself. Instead, I just think of myself less. Humility and gentleness. Ability to say, I'm so loved by our king that I don't need to prove anything to you. 
But at the same time, I can give of myself for you because God did for me. The next thing Paul says, he prays for patience. Patience. In the church. What does that look like? You know what that means? It means that sometimes you need to be patient with people. It means that some people, sometimes people aren't going to grow as fast as you want them to grow. It means sometimes they're not going to think what you want them to think. It means you are going to go back to the same lessons over and over again, and you're going to say, you know what, but you're my brother and sister in Christ, and I'm going to be patient with you because, oh yeah, God was patient with me. And so instead of an atmosphere where we are afraid to be honest and to share with each other, afraid of an atmosphere where we're afraid to be known, we say, hey, be patient with me, I'm in progress. And we can say, yeah, yes, so am I. Bearing with one another in love. Do you know that phrase, bearing with one another? What if in my marriage I said, you know, I'm just gonna bear with you today. (laughs) First of all, husbands, don't say that, okay? (laughs) But do it. You know what that means? It means there's times I just have to shoulder this and say, I have to shoulder on your worst of days, on those moments, and and maybe it's health crisis, maybe it's a financial crisis, maybe it's just we're not connecting or whatever it is, but there's days you just have to say, you know what, today I'm gonna be strong when you're weak. So in the church, there's times you need to be strong when someone else is struggling. You bear with one another in love. And then diligently keeping the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Notice that. He doesn't say accidentally having unity in the church. He didn't say that, yeah, if you do this, then maybe you guys will be united. No, diligently working towards unity. Do you know how hard that is to work towards unity? In the last three years, we've had to practice this, and it is difficult There are times when there are people in this room who have different political views, different ideas about life and faith than I do, and it is hard to stay united. It's hard. It's not going to happen on accident, but it will happen when we say, if the Spirit of God who raised Christ Jesus from the dead is in you, and he's in me, and that matters. You must have value. And so we're going to work to love each other. We're going to work to be united. doesn't mean we're going to work to have the same ideas about everything. We're not. It's just not going to work. We have different perspectives. My wife and I joke. In our families, one side thinks that we're crazy liberals. The other side thinks we're crazy conservatives. And we're like, really? But we're just, we think we the same things. But perspectives really, it, it can be, it can put you in different camps, right? But then if we say, but we are, we're going to fight for unity. As a church, we're going to do that. And friends, I'm not talking just at Seacoast, although it's important. It also means the church of Christ across the world. There are people who love Jesus, who worship Jesus, who just think differently than we do. Now, if it's heresy and they're teaching that Jesus is not God or king, that's different. But if they have a different way of doing things, you're not going to hear anyone in our leadership talking bad about what they do or how they do it. Because they're our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we love them. And the church is strong when we fight for unity. We are not going to be the type of church that's going to say, we do it right and they do it wrong. Nope. We're going to be the type of church that says we love Jesus and we're going to worship him the best we can. And hopefully we get some things right and there's some things we're probably going to say, whoops. But it's going to be based on love. Amen. Yes. I'm going to invite the worship team to make their way up. And as they make their way up, 
we're going to transition and end our time in a time of communion. See, when we look at this story today, it, it, it's not just possible, but it's probable that the Ephesian church was so good at being different than the world around them, and they were rooted in doctrine, it's probable that they were that, but that they lost their way of being rooted in the love of God that flowed over to others. And friends, if we're going to survive for 35 more years, we want to be rooted and established in Jesus Christ, built up in him and his love for us and for others. And as we transition to a time of communion, the communion is a perfect picture of that love. And so in a moment, what we're going to do, I'm going to invite you to go to the tables. And we have bread and we have juice. And the bread represents the body of Christ. It reminds us that Jesus actually came. He actually lived a physical life. He died an actual death for our sins and was buried and rose again on the third day. That he was, body was broken for you and for me. That when we were still sinners, he did that for us. That love is incredible. And the juice will represent the covenant of his blood that was shed. It was a promise that God made to you and to me that cannot be broken. Meaning his forgiveness is enough. You're, you cannot out-sin the grace of God. When we take the juice, we're reminded that his love, his promise, is greater than your greatest weakness. And so we're going to invite you to go to the tables, and you can go by yourself. You can go as a couple, as a family, maybe someone in your life group. If you want to spread out around the room, if you want to go back to your seat, however you want to take communion, the only things I'm going to ask you to do is this. The first thing is this. Would you take a moment and just thank God for his love for you? Say, thank you, God, that you did this for me, that your love is so incredible. On my worst days, you still would do this for me. Thank you that I'm that loved. And then I want you to do one other thing and think of, is there someone in your life, maybe a Christian in this church, maybe a family member that you have allowed unity to not exist because maybe you've given in to gossip or slander or just saying, hey, we just don't get along. Is there a name of someone that you can lift up and just say, and God, I thank you that you love this person just as much as you love me. Be willing to go there. And then take the elements and remember that this is all rooted and based and grounded in Jesus. You don't have to be strong enough because he is. Amen? So we're going to go, you have this song, take it at your own timing, in your seats or around the room. Let's let the love of God transform how we interact. Okay, would you pray with me? God, we thank you for today. And I thank you that your love, it's, it's just hard to understand sometimes. Sometimes it's easy to think that you'd love everyone else but me. And Lord, there's sometimes I feel like I'm lovable, but others aren't. And neither is true, God. You love us all so much. You gave your life. And so would you let that truth transform us to root us and ground us in who you are and what that means for the way we live. So we give you this time and thank you, Lord. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your bloodshed and what it means. We give you this time. Amen.
So let's take uh, this 